No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. Restoring old chairs and cooking dinner may first appear to be common creative acts, but stripped down resides a pair of stories about life, death, near death, and second chances. First up, celebrated author Rebecca Chase revisits a true-life tale she previously thought of as complete. Kicking off the second half of our crafty show at the Astoria Bookshop, here is Painting Chairs, read for us live, above-ground end train and all, by Ruthie Kirwin. Rebecca, you wrote the next story that we're going to hear, and I know that it's a story that you are revisiting after a few years, and also, too, I'm very excited that your students are here. Rebecca Chase is the director of the MA in Creative Writing Program at Fairleigh Dickinson University. My question for you, when you went through the Know You Tell It process, what were surprises, delights, places where you hit a wall? Like, what was what was different shaping a story with us? Well, that's so interesting. I was actually talking to these guys on the way here about hearing when you... You know, it, it's true. As you know, you hear it in someone else's voice, and all of a sudden, it is really fresh to you. And it was it it, it opened up ways that you know. I actually thought it was complete, and I was wrong. <laughs> That's the honest truth. Okay, I was like, oh, this is yeah, this is pretty good. And then when I heard it, I was like, oh no, this actually means a lot. You know, this could really be better with more work. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of general, but that is true. No. And I also, right with the trivia, I have a backup question, too, okay. because I was really curious. I have seen you spin fire yes. at a writing residency, which doesn't yes. always happen. So I was wondering, how does that happen, and how does one learn how to do that? Oh, yeah. Um, practice. <laughs> you got to meet people who know how to do that. And then you have to say, hey, I'd really love to learn how to do that. So what inspired you the, with the first time? Did you see it done somewhere? Yeah, I saw it done. And um, I really said, wow, that, that's amazing. That's so beautiful. How hard is that? And I was like, it's actually not all that hard if you're not afraid of fire. <laughs> right? I mean, you have to be careful. You have to, you have to be careful. Uh-huh. You know, don't let guys. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so I asked, and then I learned, and then I did it unlit for a long time. And then, you know, I did it lit, and it's really fun. Flame on. Flame on. <laughs> Flame on. It was great. It's really fun, actually. Well, I think Flame on is the first perfect segue to the second half of the evening. So we're going to hear Painting Chairs, written by Rebecca Cheese. Painting Chairs. I've been painting chairs this summer. It's my second summer visiting my boyfriend at his country house in the Catskills, though it's not only my boyfriend's house. The house belongs to him and his wife. I am here because his wife is dead. She passed away two and a half years ago, and her death sometimes feels as blunt and brutal as the undeniable fact that the phrase passed away is trying to soften. I didn't know her, but she was a powerful woman who died too young and left behind an adolescent son and a husband of 20 years. Loving someone who has such loyalty to the one who came before is not without its intricacies. This house is filled with photos of his wife, the two of them with their son, the happiness of a good marriage. They had one child, and the sense I get is that this boy completed their world. The three of them created a perfect geometry for each other. I also have adolescent children, but their father is alive. 
and he and I were not the perfect geometry for each other, and there are no frame photos of my married life in my home anymore. The bedroom here has a special place for her, a shrine he has made in this era of non-denominational invention. There are photos of her, photos of the two of them, and objects of personal significance. A postcard, a shell. I don't need to ask or be told the stories there. It is an act of love and an expression of grief. And since it is under the window opposite of the bed, it is the first thing I see every morning when I wake up. I know enough of grieving to understand that there is no linear time that applies to deep loss. I wondered if the shrine would still be in the bedroom the second summer when I came to spend a month with him in the country. When I saw that it was, I wished that he had dismantled it before I arrived, but said nothing. It is private, and I never touch it, yet I am sleeping with her as well. I would be, even if the shrine was packed away. We both have dreams about her. Guilty dreams. He will dream that she's still alive, but he's having an affair with me. I dream that I just found out he's married, and I can't believe I've been so stupid. Sometimes my dreams are driven by jealousy. She's calling on the phone, and the two of them are laughing at jokes that come of a shared history. He's writing to get his son on the phone to speak to her. In this dream, I am in the room, but he is not thinking about me at all. He simply ignores me. I am painting chairs. I found some old chairs in the barn and had the idea that putting them around this rough property would be an invitation to sit and look at the stream or read by the pond. It would be a surprise to visitors, an unexpected color. My boyfriend is an abstract painter, but this is my project. The chairs were in a jumble near the woodpile, along with everything else that's been waiting decades to go to the dump or be of use. My boyfriend's parents were Midwestern farm stock, and he has inherited their belief that everything will eventually be of use. There are six bicycles in various states of repair, stacks of windows from an old construction project, a baby gate. He offered me his wife's rubber boots one rainy day, but I left them in the basket of old shoes and sandals that he claims guests will use, and I claim, or I wish, he would just throw away. <laughs> there aren't many guests now that she is gone. It is mostly just him and the boy. The house came with a big two-story barn, and the unfinished side still has a dirt floor. His wife was also a painter, and after they made two studios by cutting large windows into the wall facing the field, then putting up sheetrock and clip lights, they didn't care much about the rest. It's a summer place. The barn has a good roof to keep the paintings dry and plenty of places for chipmunks to wander in and out. Woodchucks live beneath the foundations, and they're not going anywhere. I was in the barn grabbing wood for the fire when I first saw the chair legs sticking up at odd angles, some with busted seats, but nothing that couldn't be replaced with a piece of plywood. A few were grouped together as if in conversation with each other, waiting for someone to come and sit. He told me his wife liked to buy chairs at yard sales with the rule that she would never spend more than $5 a chair. I think I would have liked her. Everybody liked her. I pull one chair out of the pile. The back is a wooden loop and the legs have a gentle curve. It's a friendly chair. I was writing many hours a day, which meant I needed a project that didn't require sitting and thinking. I helped out in the garden, but tending the same plot of earth for 20 years creates its own tangible history, and though I liked to garden, I hesitated to do more than weed what was already established. She did the flowers. He did the vegetables. The first summer, he encouraged me to get more involved with the garden. I had planted flowers in the vegetable garden in my own long-ago garden, long-ago life on another coast. Bright marigolds keep the bugs away, bugs away. Pansies and nasturtiums splice up the salad. He liked my planting the nasturtiums and the marigolds and added zinnias along the border. He's a colorist on canvas, and now there was blue, orange, and red in the garden along with dark green kale and pale butter lettuce. I bought some rose bushes for the far end, but when I was away, he planted my roses outside the fence, 
and didn't really have an answer when I asked him why. It made sense to plant them there, despite the deer. After all, the fence around the garden was too low to really keep the deer out, but if I wanted to move them... No, I didn't want to move them. I didn't really want to talk about them anymore. They would survive, or they wouldn't. The bed planted between the house and the barn was his sister's. The bed below the house was The bed he shared with me was the island where we both had swum ashore. I carried the friendly chair over to his side of the barn where he's working in the studio and asked if I could paint it. Sure, he says, and gives it his carpenters once over. It was a little tippy, but I told him that I wanted to put it outdoors, and it didn't have to be perfect. We could always shove one leg a little deeper in the earth or balance it with a flat stone, maybe down by the pond or that spot near the stream where tiny black dragonflies skim. It only takes a chair to make an invitation. So I buy quarts of mistake house paint from the hardware store, colors they mixed wrong and are selling for cheap. He loans me his stencils if I want to get fancy. I'm painting leaves and stripes and polka dots. I don't take things off or worry about the straight lines. He knows enough not to comment on my color choices, and I'm glad he doesn't interfere when I forget to prime a dark wooden chair and lay around three coats of yellow enamel. <laughs> he finds me brushes and sandpaper, cuts out new chair seats with his jigsaw, and nails them neatly into place. He likes the salvage project. Every chair has its own shape and color, a child's dream of chairs becoming animals, becoming flowers, becoming, finally, themselves. The chairs get painted, and then they go outdoors. We joke that it's my art installation, and when a new one is finished, I surprise him with where I placed it on the landscape. He says it makes me happy. It makes him happy to see the chairs. He says that I make him happy. We talk about his wife. I talk about my ex, and we talk about our children. This is real life, and we no longer have the fearlessness of youth. We moved in together because we were spending every night in each other's arms, and the rent was cheaper that way. In some instances, this developed into marriage and children. Sometimes I wish we were both that fearless again, but even if all the children were grown and gone, when he says we, he usually means himself and his wife. I sometimes feel like a bird perched on the edge of a nest that was built by another. I look down into that circle of twigs and hair, soft scraps of cloth scavenged from the yard. I wonder if there is room for me to fit inside. I try to choose my words carefully, though I sometimes fail, and he does as well. We each work alone in our studios and share the tasks that shape the days gardening, cooking, and washing up. I try to think about the silences between us as negative space in a painting, shaping what is there. I don't know how many chairs I painted that summer. I remember two by the stream, an old rocking chair under the willow, and one in the corner of the garden. When I left to go back to the city in late August, he stayed upstate, commuted to work for as long as he could take painting in an unheated barn. When Hurricane Irene hit at the end of August, the rivers rose, the trees fell, and people lost their homes, lost their main streets, and had to decide whether it was worth rebuilding. Some towns never made it back. High in the mountains, his property was fine, but the stream became a river for long enough to wash away the chairs he had planned to move up to the barn before winter came. After the hurricane, we found bits and pieces scattered along the banks of the stream, an occasional bright color wedged into muddy branches, splintered logs, or a seat which had become nothing more than a painted circle of wood. Mostly the chairs were gone. Wood to wood, ashes to ashes. Maybe this summer I'll paint another chair and put it out in the field. Maybe I'll walk through on another field, miles away, and think of him. Maybe I'll come back to the house where I'm staying and call him on the phone. Maybe he'll tell me how finding this chair surprised him again. He'll tell me how much he loves the chair, how much he loves me, and how the light has changed. Switching it up, 
An accomplished chef prepares for a picture-perfect entry into motherhood, but is sidelined by postpartum depression. Ruthie Kirwin, author of the Healthy Sheet Pan Cookbook, gives us a glimpse into the unseen ingredients that go into a mother's recipes. Here is her story, Tuna Casserole, read for us by Rebecca Chase. I was wondering for your Q&A question, I think a lot about how we put so much energy into writing and revising and preparing myself as a teacher, yet I take a lot of other art forms for granted, like music, songs just happen, and you are a cooking instructor, and and for me, food just happens. (laughs) So I was wondering, thinking about it, what is the drafting process for a recipe? Is it anything like what we were doing in the story meetings? I mean, I think for for a good recipe, it is a lot, an awful lot like writing a story where you, you have an idea, a nugget of an idea, and you try it out, and then you think about it for a while, and then you do it again, and you make it better, and there's an ed- there's definitely an editing process that happens, so the, 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 this process is very similar. Mm-hmm. And second question, because I think we should stay on the theme of fire, have you ever <laughs> set something on fire? <laughs> um, I haven't ever set anything on fire, but I've had some wicked burns, so I don't know if that counts. I think so, like like smoke alarms going off. Oh yeah, definitely, smoke alarms going off, yeah. (laughs) Red grease burns, all of that kind of stuff that comes out of fire. I'm okay, obviously. (laughs) Again, flame on. Yes. We'll hear the final story for the evening. You can can take your seat now. Tuna Casserole, written by Ruthie and performed by Rebecca Chase. Tuna casserole. At 15, I taught myself to cook because I decided I was sick and tired of eating my mom's tuna casserole five nights a week. She hated cooking, still does. And despite that, she came home from work every night while we were growing up and made dinner for us, and we sat down together as a family and ate it. There was a small handful of meals she'd make on the regular, and that was that. Breaded chicken served with sliced carrots, Spaghetti made with a brick of ground beef and a jar of Prego. (laughs) Plain pork chops served with bagged salad and bottled ranch dressing. It's funny, I hated those meals growing up and was utterly bored by the sameness of it all. But now, they're the very meals I crave when I've had a bad day. It's interesting the way our taste buds mature as adults, and I can say that I've eaten, happily, some really weird and really fancy stuff Yet, nothing makes me quite as satiated as a plate of my mom's breaded chicken and a side of sliced carrots. But regardless of my burgeoning bourgeois tastes as a 15-year-old living in the upper Midwest, my mom still made dinner every night, and we always sat down as a family to eat it. Not, you know, happily. (laughs) (laughs) But we ate it. We talked and told each other about our days. And it was super Norman Rockwell and really, really wonderful. And so one of my earliest understandings about food and family is that the food doesn't have to be perfect and the family doesn't have to be perfect, but it's the coming together that matters. I just, you know, couldn't take one more day of tuna casserole. So at age 15, I taught myself how to cook and I obsessed over cookbooks and the Food Network, which in those days wasn't just cooking competitions and preening celebrity chefs, but people who seemed normal and inspirational, like the barefoot Contessa and her store-bought herbs. (laughs) 
on my bedroom walls in high school, alongside posters of 98 Degrees and Justin Timberlake, were photos of Alice Waters I ripped out of Bon Appetit, <laughs> and computer printouts of Rocco Despierto. <laughs> After I graduated high school, I went to culinary school. While in school, I interned abroad in Ireland and met my now husband while living and cooking in Dublin. After college, I worked the line, ran professional kitchens, and catered fancy weddings in Baltimore and Washington, D.C. I baked cookies in Union Square and eventually became a freelance recipe tester and developer, working at home in our tiny apartment in the East Village and then in Long Island City, and spending every day thinking in some capacity about food and cooking. Food. Good food. Fancy food. Authentically sourced food. Consumed my hobbies, my days, thoughts, it was a core, central part of the person I was, and I reveled in it. When I became pregnant in 2013, I read up on all the latest baby food trends and decided on a style of early feeding called baby-led weaning, which is when you more or less just hand a six-month-old the same food you're eating and let them develop their palate with actual food, not purees. Between that and breastfeeding, I envisioned myself as this sort of Earth mother hybrid. <laughs> Someone who was one with the earth and motherhood, but still ate foie gras. <laughs> I mean, I really thought I had this whole kid feeding and family cooking thing nailed long before the kid and family even came along. And then she was born. And then I got postpartum depression. And then I stopped cooking. I just... I don't know, didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to eat good things anymore, let alone cook them. The baby cried, and the takeout containers in our kitchen piled up, and instead of reading Cook's Illustrated and browsing cookbooks before bed, I'd scroll Facebook mom groups and eat baked potatoes and hard-boiled eggs. Two things that could be cooked with as little effort as possible. My love of good food and cooking just sort of flamed out. And in its place was a baby with colic. The thing is, I've always been an extremely positive person. Relentlessly, midwesternly cheerful. <laughs> and when I was pregnant, I waved off the very thought of postpartum depression. Me? With postpartum depression? I have never been depressed a day in my life. I mean, what was there to be depressed about? The world is wonderful and full of great food, and we have a baby on the way. But that's the sneaky thing about depression, isn't it? That it comes on when you least expect it to, at the most inconvenient times, and it just takes away the good stuff and leaves you sitting on your couch at 3 in the morning, slathering breastfeeding salve inside a blood-stained nursing bra, and crying, living off baked potatoes <coughs> and eggs. Cooking, cooking was the one thing that had made me me. And suddenly, I didn't care about it anymore. And I wondered, <coughs> then, what was I now? Just a mom? I didn't even miss cooking. And that freaked me out most of all. At the time, we lived in a sort of weird no-man's land in Long Island City, straddling the line between Dutch Kills, Astoria, and Hunter's Point. We lived on the fourth floor of an apartment building that sat beside the subway line, 
turning up the volume on the TV every time a train went by. <laughs> Simultaneously separated from people on the ground, but also right next to them as they sped by on the end. Like the city just over the river, they were so close we could make eye contact, but too far away to touch, separated by windows and air. I felt marooned in LIC. At night, after I'd put my daughter to bed, I would have a glass of wine on the balcony and look out over the train tracks at the skyline of Manhattan. It felt as though somewhere inside all those glittery lights was my past life, just out of reach, too far away to touch. The days were also crushingly lonely as my husband's work hours were long and intense, and my friends, all childless, disappeared back into the city to live their lives. And I was really bored. Newborns, no one tells you beforehand, are actually really boring. I was badly sleep deprived and felt like I was drowning. And yet, I also felt this immense pressure from social media to present a picture of happiness. And so that's what I did. I posted cute pictures and responded to comments saying how happy I was, how happy we all were, and how wonderful this all was. And the entire time, I felt like I was this stranger, standing on the outside of my body, looking in. One day, my daughter, about three or four months old at the time, was overtired and crying, and crying, and crying. She had always been soothed by the sound of the train overhead, <laughs> and by being warned. So, in a desperate attempt to get her to be quiet, I put her in the baby carrier, and we went for a walk under the evening rush hour train walking up 31st Street toward Astoria. The train roared overhead at regular intervals, whooshing and rumbling, and I walked, patting her back as the rhythm of my steps and the rhythm of the train lulled us both, and she finally, blessedly, fell asleep. Still mindlessly patting her back, numb with sleep deprivation, my thoughts foggy and slow, I turned around to walk us home. And then I stepped off the curb and walked us straight into oncoming traffic. Cars on either side slammed on their brakes, and one lady laid on her horn. She yelled something out her window at me, but I couldn't tell what she said. I just stumbled back onto the sidewalk, and that's when it hit me. This is not okay. None of this is okay. I just almost got both of us killed. And something has to change. It was such a scary moment that even now looking back, I get the chills when I think about how close those cars came. It took me years to even tell my husband what happened because I knew that he would be horrified. And because I didn't want to burden him with worry about my mental state when he was already stressed. And mostly because I was ashamed ashamed of how far down I'd slid, of how foggy I'd let my brain become, that I'd let things get so bad that it almost brought tragedy. It haunts me still. A few days after the near accident, after I'd finally shaken off some of the anxiety that encounter had given me, I sat down and wrote out a meal plan for that week. It was the first meal plan I'd written in years, and it <coughs> felt strange and good and 
almost comical because like since when am I actually going to make a pot roast? <laughs> but I was determined to take something back, to get a piece of me back again. And if that thing wasn't going to be sleep, I decided it was going to be cooking. I walked my daughter down to the store and we bought the ingredients. It was the first time since her birth that I had bought more at that store than snacks and coffee, and it felt strange. You know how when you move to a new neighborhood and one of the most annoying things you first encounter is the layout of the new grocery store? <laughs> you walk the aisles and think, why on earth would they put the pasta here? And why can't I find the rice? We'd been in the neighborhood for barely a year at that point, but before she'd come along, I typically ordered groceries from Fresh Direct and schlepped to the farmer's market in the city, which meant that in this store, I only knew which aisles held the Oreos, the coffee, and those damned potatoes and eggs. Everything else was a hunt to find. After finally filling my cart and checking out, I walked my daughter home, and then with her snug in the baby carrier, turned on some music, and started cooking. I remember vividly one of the first recipes I made. It was a sheet pan meal, a simple style of cooking where every ingredient for the dish is laid onto the same big sheet pan and placed in a hot oven and roasted. This recipe was for a lemon-baked chicken with rosemary, and it was wholly unlike the complicated dishes I'd made before becoming a mom. Clean, easy, put together with one hand while the other helped my daughter. I remember thinking, how easy? Too easy. <laughs> the recipe looked. And then I'd just throw it together and maybe order a takeout salad to put the chicken on if it was too boring to eat as it is. But it came out crispy and full of flavor and a delicious smell of lemon and rosemary filling the apartment as I stood over the stove, eating straight off the pan with my hands, <laughs> suddenly ravenous. Cooking something so easy yet flavorful felt foreign to me because, until this point, everything I had ever cooked felt like it needed 50 different steps in order to be worth it. I felt, if I felt like eating salmon burgers, for example, I would walk down to the grocery store and buy fancy line-caught salmon, avocados, hand-ground panko, panko breadcrumbs, <laughs> and make mayo from scratch. <laughs> It was the process of cooking that I loved almost as much as the eating. But cooking with a baby can't be that precious or you wind up frustrated and eating a lot of things like baked potatoes. Ask me how I know. And so, sheet pan meals and one pan meals and crock pot cooking took center stage for me. Instead of making chili with 45 steps, I'd buy simple ingredients and experiment with different, easier cook times instead. I was cooking again which felt like me, but it was a different style of cooking than I was used to, and it seemed much better suited to the new me that had emerged after motherhood. It made sense. Recipe by recipe, I started to feel like myself again. It took another four or five months for the depression to fully lift. I'm going to be honest. I had more bad days and bad weeks and a lot of tears and sleepless nights and feelings of defeat. But those first few recipes and that first meal plan started the ball rolling to where I felt like I could figure out my role in this family that my husband and I had created. Like, I wasn't always on the outside looking at myself anymore. Like, I was creating a home for us. 
Like I was figuring out this parenthood thing step by step and meal by meal in my own way. I sometimes wish I hadn't gone through such a shitty postpartum period, but then other times I'm grateful. Those difficult days made me feel closer to my daughter, for one. We've entered life and parenthood via a baptism of fire, and that forged a steel bond. Sometimes, when I'm tired in the evenings, when I need to make dinner at the end of a long day, as my kids hang on my legs and Netflix and chill seems very far away. (laughs) I think of my mom. I think about her breaded chicken and tuna casseroles, and she was probably pretty tired then, too. I think about my baked potatoes and sheet pan meals and new beginnings and old recipes, and that no matter how tired we feel, we keep going. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.